This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 175th edition of the program. This is Thursday, January 10th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us or increased their monthly pledge to support us, and that includes Amala, David Easton, Frank Valerio, Jared Rodriguez, Matthias Fritz, and Steve McManus. So thank you so much to all of these kind souls. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. And before we get into the news, just a little caveat here. I'm starting to get sick and I feel kind of shitty, so the show might suffer from it. You know how when you get sick, you kind of feel like you can't think straight and your head is just like clouded? That's kind of how I feel, so I may have a difficult time trying to articulate myself, so just keep that in mind. Hopefully hopefully the show won't be too shitty, but nonetheless, if you're wondering why <laughs> I seem as if I'm not able to collect my thoughts, that's why, although I do kind of feel like I'm being a baby because I'm only just starting to get sick, and I know that probably when I wake up tomorrow, I will feel exponentially worse, but for the most part, let's hurry up and record this episode before I feel worse. So, on today's show, we'll talk about Donald Trump and how he's been president now for two years and going into his second year, we're now stuck with a government shutdown due to a prolonged temper tantrum by the 72-year-old president. And we'll also talk about attacks on the planet by him and his fascist counterpart in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. Also, the anti-SJWs have officially become the new SJWs, as the right wing melted down collectively over Rashida Tlaib's comment, and it really, I think, showed who's actually driving outrage culture in the United States. Additionally, Whoopi Goldberg scolded Ocasio-Cortez and a CNN hack was caught lying about trying to take her out of context, and a so-called journalist named Max Boot decided to compare her to Donald Trump and Sarah Palin, of all people. And we'll talk about what the battle to save net neutrality will look like in 2019, the Senate's first priority of the year, how Joe Manchin got visibly uncomfortable when asked about whether or not Trump is a liar, and Our Revolution launched a campaign to draft Bernie that I am 100% on board with. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. I hope you all enjoy the show. So by the time you see this, we'll all have watched President Trump make his primetime address to the American people, where he pitches his wall to everyone amid a nearly three-week shutdown now. Three weeks, that's really absurd, so I kind of want to take a moment to pause and reflect on just how absurd this entire situation is, because the government has been shut down for nearly three weeks because Donald Trump is throwing a prolonged temper tantrum. And there is no end to this government shutdown in sight because he actually said, if need be, the shutdown may last for months or even years. Yeah, he actually said this. 
So you're telling us, Trump, that you'd be willing to allow business across the country to be disrupted because flights will be disrupted because TSA agents are rightfully not coming into work. They're calling in in mass because, I mean, I wouldn't work if I wasn't getting paid, would you? So you'd allow all of this to happen, chaos to unfold, public parks to build up trash all because you're throwing a temper tantrum? I mean, this is absurd. But what's strange to me is that the absurdity of Donald Trump's temper tantrum isn't even the craziest part of the story. To me, I think the most surprising element of the story here is that Democrats haven't already folded because we all saw back in January of 2018 how quickly they folded when they said they were going to fight for dreamers. Within two and a half days into that shutdown, they caved, but this time they're surprisingly holding strong. And look, they have no reason to cave, but it's Democrats, so I always just kind of expect them to do the wrong thing, but credit where it's due, they're holding strong. Now, what's interesting to me also, because there's so many elements about this story that's just fascinating and irritating uh, simultaneously, What's interesting is that Donald Trump really wants us to forget that he said multiple times that Mexico would pay for the wall, but here he is throwing a temper tantrum because Democrats won't agree to allow taxpayers to foot the bill. Now, when a CNN reporter actually called him out for this, he did not take it well. You ran your campaign promising supporters that Mexico is going to pay for the wall oh, and that the again. wall was going to be okay. made of concrete. You just said earlier that the wall could be made of steel and right now our government is shut down over a demand from your administration that the American taxpayer pay for the wall. So how can you say you're not failing on that promise to your supporters? Uh, very nice question, so beautifully asked, even though I just answered it. You didn't answer Look, let me the just tell you, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, are you ready? Are you ready? Uh, I just told you that we just made a trade deal, and we will take in billions and billions of dollars, far more than the cost of the wall. The wall is peanuts compared to what the value of this trade deal is to the United States. As far as concrete, uh, I said I was going to build a wall. I never said, I'm going to build a concrete. I said I'm going to build a wall. You said just so you don't, because I know you're not into the construction business, uh, you don't understand something. We now have a great steel business that's rebuilt in the United States. Steel is stronger than concrete. If I build this wall or fence or anything the Democrats need to call it, because I'm not into names, I'm into production. I'm into something that works. If I build a steel wall rather than a concrete wall, it will actually be stronger than a concrete. Steel is stronger than concrete, okay? Oh, okay, so Mexico is still gonna pay for the wall, albeit in an indirect way. Because of this new trade deal that you signed, well, in the end, it will net us billions and billions of dollars. I don't know why he says it weird like that. It's going to give us billions of dollars. But the problem with this argument, as the reporter pointed out, is that Congress hasn't even approved this trade deal yet. It may not necessarily be approved. It could fail. And furthermore, even if it were approved, that's not how things work. That's not how any of this works. You're just making words salad, but that's not a real plan to fund your monument to white supremacy. It's not a real plan, Trump. I think people would respect you more if you just admitted that you think our tax dollars, rather than helping us by going towards healthcare, education, or social safety net programs, it should go towards something that will make you look good and make your sycophant supporters feel better, even though only one third of undocumented immigrants came here by crossing the border. I mean, it doesn't matter that two-thirds of all undocumented immigrants came here legally, but they just simply 
overstayed their visas. That doesn't matter. Facts don't matter because the wall would make Donald Trump and his cult followers feel better. And really, it would effectively act as a sign saying brown people are not welcome in America. Just come out and say it. I mean, stop beating around the bush. Just be honest. And then I'm going to be honest. I say no to the wall because facts don't care about your feelings. And even though a border wall might make MAGA chuds feel better, it doesn't change the fact that there is no immigration crisis. Net immigration is currently zero. And apprehensions at the southern border are at a five-decade low. Undocumented immigrants also don't commit more crime, so that shouldn't be a worry. They commit less crime than native-born citizens. And if you're still worried about whatever threat you think undocumented immigrants pose, that's fine. But acknowledge that you've been duped because you don't realize that there's a bigger threat to your life. And that threat is climate change. A bigger threat is not having Medicare for all. But since hating on immigrants is just such an effective way to get elected, that's what Donald Trump is doing here. He's having this tantrum over a wall that is functionally unnecessary, but at the same time, it's symbolically everything. It's important to them. So, regardless, it's a temper tantrum. It's something that is completely unnecessary. And if you truly care about immigration, illegal immigration specifically, then a wall should be the least of your concerns. But nonetheless, they're still fighting for it. And this is a temper tantrum that led to a government shutdown by Donald Trump. And there are consequences now for Donald Trump's temper tantrum. For example, an estimated 800,000 federal workers won't be receiving their paychecks. And they're worrying about whether or not they'll be able to pay their bills, pay their rent, pay for their prescription drugs. And on top of that, public parks are currently being overrun with garbage. Yosemite reportedly had 27 tons of garbage piled up. 27 tons. Try to visualize what 27 tons of garbage looks like, all of which has not been disposed. And you have the National Parks Conservation Association estimating that public parks lost $5 million in revenue from fees since the government shutdown. But according to Donald Trump and Trump sycophants, this is all worthwhile for that wall, that symbolically effective wall. And throughout the shutdown, Donald Trump has said some of the most idiotic and done some of the most idiotic things he's done in all of his presidency. First of all, he said that the federal workers who are not being paid support him because they think the wall is important. Um, that's just not true. He also said that he can relate with federal workers who are not being paid, which I find hilarious because someone who inherited $400 million from daddy who literally shit on a fucking gold toilet thinks he can relate to workers who are living paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> Amazing. And furthermore, he tweeted out this moronic image of himself saying that the wall is coming using Game of Thrones text. Also, it can seem more relatable. And hey, kids, I watch Game of Thrones too. Aren't I cool? Don't you think the wall is cool? Because <laughs> there's a wall in Game of Thrones. How do you do, fellow kids? This is all idiotic and what we're seeing is a petulant child demand something that is completely unnecessary and fiscally irresponsible but another element of this story that people are kind of missing that i want to shine a light on is how we're seeing donald trump not only become more petulant but also more authoritarian simultaneously so take a look at what he said about the idea of using emergency funds by declaring a national emergency to get the wall by subverting Congress. Have you considered using emergency powers to grant yourself authorities to build this wall without 
congressional approval. And second yes, on I Mexico, have. you have. Yes, I have. And, and I can do it if I want. So you don't need congressional approval to build the no, wall? No, we can use them. Absolutely. We can call a national emergency because of the security of our country. Absolutely. No, we can do it. I haven't done it. I may do it. I may do it. But we can call a national emergency and build it very quickly. And uh, it's another way of doing it. But if we can do it through a negotiated process, we're giving that a shot. So is that uh, a threat hanging over the Democrats? I never threaten anybody. I never threaten anybody. Now, can he actually do this? I think that's kind of an open question at this point. It's certainly legally dubious, and if he does do it, it's going to be a prolonged court battle because we all know that, you know, Congress can technically respond to this if he chooses to do this and pass a bill, but the Senate being controlled by Republicans, they're not going to let that happen. And we all know that Mitch McConnell is also culpable here for this shutdown because if he wanted to, he could end the shutdown immediately by allowing a vote on a bill that would fund the government that would actually pass because there are Republicans that are vulnerable, like Susan Collins, who desperately want the government to be reopened because they don't want Trump's tantrum to be their downfall politically. But uh, Mitch McConnell is not allowing that to happen. But getting to the question of whether or not Trump can do this, as Scott Horsley of NPR explains, there are dozens of laws that give the president special powers to act in an emergency. For example, in an emergency, the president is allowed to divert money to military construction projects, which could conceivably include the border wall. So, I mean, the mere fact that he's even considering this as a means to achieve his idiotic ends is... Something that should be concerning, because think about this. This is someone who already has authoritarian tendencies, and he's already outpacing his predecessors when it comes to executive orders. And even though he complained about Obama signing too many executive orders back in 2016, he signed more than Obama, and he's now floating an idea to literally declare a bogus national emergency in order to achieve a particular aim that is entirely political, which is basically authoritarianism, 101. And to be fair to him, the consolidation of the executive didn't start with Donald Trump. It actually started with Bush, who exploited 9-11 to expand his power to unilaterally wage war. But that trend also continued with Obama. And now we have a racist, proto-fascist in the White House with authoritarian tendencies who's willing to declare a national emergency in order to secure funding for an unnecessary border wall. So understand that it's difficult to kind of step back and take a holistic approach to what's going on when you're in the trenches, when you're fighting in the midst of battle, but we are witnessing, slowly but surely, the downfall of American democracy. And we were never really a democracy to begin with. It was always aspirational, but this all started with George W. Bush, as I stated, continued with President Obama, and now we have someone who really is demonstrating that democracy is collapsing e even more. And really what's collapsing is the facade of democracy because presidents now don't even really have to pretend that they care about the process. They just have to throw temper tantrums and say that they want certain things or just do certain things, and that's the way that it stands. So we are witnessing democracy dying more as if it already wasn't killed or existed in the first place, but we're witnessing democracy die, and the death of democracy is being overseen by a 12-year-old in the body of an Oompa Loompa. 
Right-wing Democrat Joe Manchin appeared on MSNBC to talk about some of the factual inaccuracies that are being disseminated right now by the White House over the border wall fiasco. Now, when the word lie came up, specifically when Joe Manchin was asked if Donald Trump was lying or was a liar along those lines, Joe Manchin got visibly uncomfortable and he obviously did not want to call Donald Trump a liar. And it was extremely weird. Take a look. So are you suggesting, Senator, that the president and the White House is making up its own set of facts, continuing this morning with interviews well, of the vice president? Well, I'm saying is his own State Department doesn't doesn't certify what they're saying. What the White House is saying, whoever's feeding the president or whoever, wherever he's getting his information, his own State Department is not basically saying these are the facts that we have and this is what we agree to. So, Senator, is the president lying to justify this wall? Oh, I guess everyone has a right to understand. If he believes it, I'm sure if but he it's, believes it. As you say, it's, it's a fact and it's not true. If it's, so a fact, if it's a fact, it's not true. And if you're not telling the truth, then you have to be lying, okay? But the bottom line is, if he believes it in his heart and soul until he finds someone that verifies or validates what he's saying, but we've got to work off the same set of facts. And the facts are right now not verifying what's being said and the president calling, calling what he's calling as far as the national emergency. But if the national emergency is going to be fought in court, if he wants to declare a national emergency, and he has money within the military to use. I know the money is there. We passed $69 billion in OCO money, uh, Overseas Contingency Fund, and caught pulling back troops. I know he'll have the money, but with that, it'll be fought in courts. If it has to be fought in courts to feed the children of West Virginia and put people back to work, so be it. So that was really embarrassing because he, throughout the course of that statement, alluded to Donald Trump being incorrect, alluding to the fact that he lied, but when asked directly if Trump lied, when the L word came up, Joe Manchin can't even stand to be in his own skin. Oh, huh. <laughs> Now, he then went on to suggest that maybe Donald Trump isn't actually a liar, maybe he just believes his own lies, therefore it's not a lie, technically. Not sure it works that way. I'm pretty sure that facts are facts, Joe. Now, towards the end, he kind of alluded to the fact that he'd maybe kind of sort of be okay with Donald Trump actually using emergency funds by declaring a national emergency to get the border wall built. I mean, whatever he does, it's always going to be at the behest of Donald Trump. And it's because Joe Manchin wants to be a Republican. Now, we all make fun of Joe Manchin and say, why don't you just join the Republican Party? You literally caucus more with them than Democrats. Why not switch teams? And in actuality, I think that Joe Manchin actually does want to be a Republican. He does want to switch teams, but they kind of aren't accepting him because he's not Republican enough for them because they are far right and he's just pretty far right, but not as far right as them. Now, the way that Joe Manchin operates is he kind of is doing everything in his power to appease Republicans because, and I'm going to psychoanalyze him here, which is something you should never do, but I'm going to do it anyway. He kind of views Congress as high school and the Republicans and Donald Trump, they're the cool kids. They're the jocks. And Joe Manchin wants to be in with the cool club, but in actuality, he's nothing more than a dweeb. And it doesn't matter what he does. 
He just can't get in good with them. He actually floated the idea of endorsing Trump in 2020, and he's always trying to hug Trump, which is really weird, and he calls what they do a, quote, man bump, which sounds extremely homoerotic to me, and Trump even made fun of him because he's always trying to hug him. So, in short, he wants to be a Republican. He desperately wants to be a Republican, but they won't accept him. And no matter how much he looks for affirmation from that party, He's not in their club, what he perceives to be the cool kids club, which is hilarious, but that's the way he views it. So even if functionally Joe Manchin is a Republican, he also wants the title. He wants the party affiliation that goes along with it, if they'll have him, but currently they won't. But he knows that if he wants to be part of the Republican Party club, then he is going to have to avoid calling the president a liar, which is why when you try to coax an admission from him that Donald Trump is lying and just admitting the obvious what everyone knows, that he's a liar, he's a pathological liar, then he gets really uncomfortable. Oh, (laughs) Pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. Joe Manchin is only there to serve Donald Trump and the Republican Party. He doesn't care at all about West Virginians at all. He often cites, you know, his constituents. He doesn't give a damn about them. This is all just a game to him. He doesn't care. He just loves being part of, you know, the club, the elites, and he wants to be a Republican. So when we all tell him, you know, hey, why are you even in the Democratic Party? Just join the Republican Party. Well, he probably wants to. It's just a matter of, um, whether or not he fits in with that party. And what we're seeing is ass-kissing and brown-nosing as a result of trying to be welcomed into the Republican Party establishment. But he's not wanted there. He's not wanted in the Republican Party, uh, the Democratic Party, and braces him for whatever reason, but progressives hate him. So he's just all around, you know, a hated figure. And he's completely pathetic. And he's stooping to lower levels now that he doesn't have to worry about re-election. What a joke Joe Manchin is. Fascism is undoubtedly on the rise throughout the world. Now, while people in the mainstream media would refer to individuals like Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro as right-wing populists, these are individuals who are fascists. They may not have resorted to violence yet, but they are using fascist Tactics. Now, you may not live in a country that has seen the rise of a right-wing fascist like Brazil or the United States, but nonetheless, you still should be incredibly concerned with the rise of fascism because it has an impact not just on individuals within those countries, but on the entire planet because fascist leaders like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro are waging a war not just on marginalized communities in their respective countries, but the planet as a whole. And we're all, every single human being right now, is having to pay the price for the rise of these right-wing demagogues. Now, when it comes to Donald Trump, he often brags about deregulation, and there's a lot of conservatives that buy into this idea that deregulation in the abstract is inherently good because they're committed to this idea that the government should be small. It doesn't matter that if the government shrinks, we're going to increase the influence and impact that large multinational corporations have on us, but government being small is inherently good. Well, here's what that looks like in practice. This chart from the New York Times shows the damage that Donald Trump has caused in just 
two years in office, he's rolled back regulations on air pollution, CO2 emissions, the extraction of oil, infrastructure, crucial protections for wildlife, regulation with regard to chemicals, along with water pollution. And if you need a real-world example as to what this looks like, well, if you recall about a month and a half ago, you know, you'd walk into the grocery store and the salad section was curiously empty. You could not find romaine lettuce. And that was because there was a nationwide E. coli outbreak. Now, why did we all of a sudden have a nationwide E. coli outbreak when it comes to romaine lettuce? Because of dirty water. And you could thank Donald Trump for that. Because had he not eliminated regulations when it comes to water testing, this could have been caught and stopped. But in responding to pressure from the agriculture industry, he shelved water testing rules. And then six months later, we all saw what that looked like. And that was just the result of one regulation being cut. But going back to the chart here, imagine how devastating the elimination of nearly 80 regulations will be. And even though 80, 78 to be exact, is a relatively small number, generally speaking, if we just zero in on a small subset of his deregulatory effort, then how does that look in practice? Take wildlife, for example, because as Nick Tabor of the New York Intelligencer characterizes it, it's an all-out war on wildlife. And not just any wildlife, but endangered species. So think about that. Just a small category of deregulation amounts to a war on wildlife. That's how powerful the effect of deregulation is. Now, let's look at that war on wildlife. As Tabor goes on to explain, the Trump administration's policies are leading to wholesale destruction of certain birds and other wildlife. This fact has escaped most public notice amid broader damage the cabinet is causing to the environment. Among other measures, regulatory agencies have been working to lift protections on endangered animals, open up vast animal habitats for drilling, encourage more trophy hunting, and repress treatment standards for farm animals. Granted, Republican administrations since Ronald Reagan's with their contempt for federal regulation have often been unfriendly to the animal kingdom. George W. Bush's administration, for instance, only added 62 kinds of animals to the endangered species list over the course of eight years compared to 700 animals each under Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. But several veteran policy advocates we reached for interviews this week said Trump's team has been unusually aggressive about regulatory rollback. I think that what's different this time is an across-the-board, no-stone-left-unturned, no-holds-barred approach to rolling back environmental safeguards, including for wildlife, said Andrew Wetzler of the National Resources Defense Council. George W. Bush's advisors, he added, picked their targets more selectively. It was more like a rifle shot approach. This is more of a shotgun approach. Ryan Zink, the Secretary of Interior, has made his office a shrine to the pointless killing of animals, decking it out with a taxidermied grizzly bear, a bobcat, and the heads of bison and elk. One of his first moves in office was to sanction the use of lead bullets in national parks, a triumph of ignorance and stupidity in the opinion of Noah Greenwald of the Center for Biological Diversity. Using lead ammunition for hunting, if you bring that food home, you're poisoning your own family, Greenwald said. It's astounding to me that that's even an issue. The Humane Society estimates that lead bullets also cause 
cause the deaths of 10 to 20 million non-targeted animals each year. So it doesn't even seem like cruelty is an unintended consequence of their deregulation. It's a feature. It's a goal. It's something that they strive for. Now, with that being said, Ryan Zink is out and there's a new acting interior secretary. And that individual is a former oil lobbyist named David Bernhardt. And if you can believe it, he may be even more cruel than Ryan Zink. And this is an individual who served as an attorney for the department under George W. Bush. And as Tabor explains, under Bernhardt's leadership, the department has enacted the biggest changes to the Endangered Species Act since it was passed in 1973. It has moved to drop most protections for threatened animal species, i.e. species that are dwindling in number but not quite at the point of facing imminent extinction. It has said economic costs should be taken into account anytime a species is being considered for endangered status. And like the Bush administration, it has been ignoring petitions to add new animals to the endangered list, such as the American wolverine, which Greenwald said has fallen to critically low population levels. It has also eliminated a number of small conservation programs, such as a breeding project for whooping cranes of which there are only 500 left in the wild in North America. So this is what's going on in America. But when you head over to Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, their newly elected president, he's already taking action that is going to have devastating consequences worldwide. Because as The Guardian's Dom Phillips reports, Hours after taking office, Brazil's new president, Jair Bolsonaro, has launched an assault on environmental and Amazon protections with an executive order transforming the regulation and creation of new indigenous reserves to the agriculture ministry, which is controlled by the powerful agribusiness lobby. The move sparked outcry from indigenous leaders who said it threatened their reserves, which make up 13% of Brazilian territory and marked a symbolic concession to farming interests at a time when deforestation is rising again. Now, on top of that, on the campaign trail, Jair Bolsonaro also said that he was going to open up the Amazon rainforest, the Earth's lungs, to big business, and he would also reduce the power of their government's environmental agencies. So you may think, I don't live in Brazil, or I don't live in the United States, or maybe I do live in those countries, but I'm part of the social hierarchy. So these fascists and whatever they do to attack marginalized communities won't hurt me. Think again, this is going to affect every single human being on the planet, what they're doing. So how do you fight the rise of right-wing, quote, populists in actuality who are just fascists? How do you combat them? You do this by having a populist on the left who actually speaks to people. You have someone who can defeat fascism, who's a progressive. And in the United States, it's Bernie Sanders. In Brazil, it was Lula da Silva. But unfortunately, he was locked up on dubious corruption charges and he will be serving out 12 years. And we all know Lula would have defeated Bolsonaro. The only thing that defeats a right-wing demagogue is a left-wing populist. And if you care about the planet, then I suggest you stop smearing the progressives like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and Lula da Silva, all of which who could save us from the destruction that is now being caused by these fascists who have came to prominence in the last couple of years. This all doesn't happen in a vacuum. 
right? It's not a coincidence that all of a sudden we have these far-right demagogues emerging in countries around the world. We all have to band together and support populism if we want to defeat them and ultimately save the planet. But because the establishment in many of these countries have failed the working class, they were susceptible to radicalism and extremism. And now this is the result. We're all suffering because of the actions of one country, multiple countries, but in action, in actuality, rather, you know, what Jair Bolsonaro does in Brazil doesn't just affect Brazil, it affects all of us. What Donald Trump does in America doesn't just affect America, it affects all of us. So we need to be aware of this and we need to fight it with the true antidote to fascism, which is left-wing populism. It's progressivism. So this is another one of those stories where I am ridiculously late to the party. I'm probably the last person in all of progressive political commentary to talk about this story, but I just couldn't pass it up because it really demonstrates that the level of hypocrisy that exists among the right is insane. It's almost unfathomable. That's how hypocritical they are. So for the two of you who don't already know about this, this is what caused outrage among the supposedly anti-PC police on the right. Newly elected Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib saying this about Donald Trump. And when your son looks at you and says, Mama, look, you won, bullies don't win. And I no. said, baby, they don't, because we're going to go in there, we're going to impeach the motherfucker. <laughs> now, the backlash to that comment from the same crowd who will almost always denounce PC culture and hypersensitivity when it's on the left... It was overwhelming. They all quickly came out to denounce what she said about Donald Trump. Not necessarily because she said that she wants to impeach Donald Trump, but because she used a naughty word. And there was outrage everywhere. And that includes the former host of No Sellouts Turned Sellout himself, H.A. Goodman, who let everyone know in a 50-minute video how inappropriate her language was. You had Fox News hosts complaining. You had Trump's administration going on Fox News to complain. And then you had a number of Democrats go on Fox News to complain. But most importantly, assure right-wingers that they'll in no way allow this type of uncivilized behavior to become the norm, even though Donald Trump is president. But my favorite meltdown out of all of them came from Joe Manchin. Republican Democrat Joe Manchin, a right-winger who couldn't wait to go on Fox News and condemn her, and not only that, but apologize to the nation. I'm not joking. Oh, so disgusting. It was horrible, Neil. No one should approve of that, and I hope she doesn't talk to her son that way either. But, uh, you know, uh, what can you say? I, I, I can't anyway uh, condone that. It's not how we act in West Virginia. It's not how we talked about public leaders. We might disagree with each other, but we try to get through it. We try to find a pathway forward where, you know, to act like that uh, is just awful. And to speak like that is even more deplorable. I am so sorry. I want to apologize to all Americans, any, any setting congressperson. There's 535 of us there. 100 senators and 435 congresspeople. We should have better manners than that, I assure you. What a pathetic brown noser you are, Joe Manchin. And since you're in the mood to apologize, will you issue an apology to Americans for your big pharma CEO daughter who decided to raise the price of EpiPens by 500%? Can we get an apology for that? My mom is one of the individuals who has to carry around an EpiPen with her wherever she goes. Can you apologize to people like my mom, Joe Manchin? Well, actually, Joe Manchin came to his daughter's defense and assured all of us that she's actually compassionate and generous in spite of what her actions may lead Americans to believe. <laughs> <laughs>
What's his moral barometer? Where is it at? It's nowhere. See, the problem with people like Joe Manchin and H.A. Goodman and any other MAGA chud that you're going to see on Fox News is that they don't really care about the physical harm that's being done to Americans. But if it's Trump's ego that's being harmed, that's when they're going to speak out. What a brave soul you are, Joe Manchin, for coming to the defense of poor Donald Trump. I'm sure you have no trouble sleeping at night. I mean, these people are jokes. Now, of course, the king of snowflakes, the person who's supposedly against PC outrage, but literally sued someone over a joke, decided to come out and say how offended he was. Your comment about the uh, the freshman congressperson's uh, comments specifically about- Well, I thought her comments were disgraceful. Uh, this is a person that I don't know. I assume she's new. Uh, I think she dishonored herself, and I think she dishonored her family. Using language like that in front of her son and whoever else was there, I thought that was a great dishonor to her and to her family. I thought it was highly disrespectful to the United States of America, yes. Her comments were so disgraceful and so disrespectful, and she dishonored herself and her family. Yes, because saying motherfucker is a way to dishonor yourself and your family, but fucking a porn star, having an extramarital affair, that's not going to dishonor you or your family, is it, Trump? The hypocrisy knows no fucking bounds. Now, I could point to you how Donald Trump had no problem with Kanye West saying motherfucker in the Oval Office in front of him, or how Donald Trump even said the same word himself. Listen, you mother we're gonna tax you 25%. And besides that, we can talk about all of the other morally reprehensible things that Donald Trump has said, because there's an infinite number of obscene things that Donald Trump has said, but instead of doing that, rather than putting together a compilation, which is what I initially wanted to do, I'm going to share a clip from Bernie Sanders who went on Sarah Silverman's show because I think that really what he says here, what he said a couple of months ago, is more relevant than ever. And we can't even use dirty words. This is the United States Senate. I can't? No, it's the United States Senate. We, we, we just um, starve little children. We go bomb houses and buses of children. And we give tax breaks to billionaires, but we don't use dirty words. No, not the S word that means poop. That's right, we don't do that. That would be so crass. Yeah, so I think that Bernie Sanders sums up this situation perfectly. People are more outraged in media, you know, in Congress, when you use naughty words. But bombing children in Yemen, giving Saudi Arabia the bombs that they'll drop on kids in Yemen, no outrage for that. In fact, it's difficult to get us to pass bills to stop them from doing that. You actually have to rally support for something like that. Something that's common sense, right? To stop supplying Saudi Arabia with weapons. We don't care about any of that. We're not outraged that people who are growing up now are not going to die due to old age. They're going to die because of climate change. We're not outraged about that. But if you say a naughty word, then we're going to denounce you. But at the same time, we will simultaneously look for every single example and pluck out wherever there is an example of outrage on the left. Oh, what's this? A blue-haired college campus lib decided to protest the speech of Milo Yiannopoulos? What an SJW. Aren't the left just being unreasonable? Aren't they so outrageous? Aren't they too sensitive? But at the same time, 
they're as sensitive themselves. Tommy Lahren went on Fox News to complain about how offended she was that there was someone that protested the flag. I mean, these people who denounce snowflakes, they're doing nothing more than projection because they are the biggest snowflakes themselves. So understand that hypocrisy isn't just the product of conservatism. As Ben Dixon says, it's a feature of conservatism. It's part of conservatism. They don't care how hypocritical they are. They don't give a shit about the optics. All that they care about is winning. So Democrats need to stop buying into this game. Members of the media should stop playing the Republican Party's game. And we should actually start caring about things that matter like healthcare and education and not when people use naughty words. So I just had to say my piece on this, even if I'm late, because this was just a new level of hypocrisy from the right, but they keep lowering the bar. So I'm sure that in a month or two, we're going to see a more brazen example of them being outraged over something even uh, less important. We've officially entered the 116th Congress and the very first priority for senators is a bipartisan effort to crack down on free speech, specifically free speech that they deemed inappropriate. Boycotts against Israel. So understand, before I get to the article here by Glenn Greenwald and Ryan Grimm, who do a phenomenal job explaining this, their number one priority, the first thing to do out of all the problems that we have is to crack down on free speech. And this isn't something that just the Republicans are doing. This is a bipartisan effort. And who actually has become a vocal opponent to this is going to surprise you. So let's get to the article. It's from The Intercept. And Greenwald and Grimm explain in the newly controlled Democratic House, H.R. 1, meant to signal the new majority's priorities as an anti-corruption bill that combines election and campaign finance reform, strengthening of voting rights, and matching public funds for small-dollar candidates. In the 2017 Senate, the GOP-controlled S-1 was a bill called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that, among other provisions, cut various forms of corporate taxes. But in the 2019 GOP-controlled Senate, the first bill to be considered, S-1, is not designed to protect American workers, bolster U.S. companies, or address the various debates over border security and immigration. It's not a bill to open the government. Instead, according to multiple sources involved in the legislative process, S-1 will be a compendium containing a handful of foreign policy-related measures, the main one of which is a provision with Florida's GOP Senator Marco Rubio as a lead sponsor to defend the Israel government. The bill is a top legislative priority for the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. In the previous Congress, that measure was known as S-170, and it gives state and local governments explicit legal authority to boycott any U.S. companies which themselves are participating in a boycott against Israel. As The Intercept reported last month, 26 states now have enacted some version of a law to punish or otherwise sanction entities that participate in or support the boycott of Israel, while similar laws are pending in at least 13 additional states. Rubio's bill is designed to strengthen the legal basis to defend those Israel-protecting laws from constitutional challenge. Punishment aimed at companies that choose to boycott Israel can also sweep up individual American citizens in its punitive net because individual contractors often work for state or local governments under the auspices of a sole proprietorship or some other business entity. That was the case with Texas Elementary School speech pathologist 
psychologist Bahia Amawi, who lost her job working with autistic and speech-impaired children in Austin because she refused to promise not to boycott goods produced in Israel and or illegal Israeli settlements. Thus far, the two federal courts that have ruled on such bills have declared them to be unconstitutional violations of the First Amendment speech rights of American citizens, a restriction of one's ability to participate in collective calls to oppose Israel unquestionably burdens the protected expression of companies wishing to engage in such a boycott. U.S. District Court Judge Diane Humatiwa of Arizona wrote in her decision, issuing a preliminary injunction against the law in a case brought last September by the American Civil Liberties Union on behalf of an attorney who has contracted with the state for the last 12 years to provide legal services on behalf of incarcerated individuals, but lost his contract to do so after he refused to sign an oath pledging not to boycott Israel. A similar ruling was issued in January of last year by a Kansas federal judge who ruled that state's Israel oath law unconstitutional on the ground that the Supreme Court has held that the first First Amendment protects the right to participate in a boycott like the one punished by the Kansas law. In that case, a Mennonite who was a longtime public school teacher lost her independent contract as a school curriculum developer after she followed her church's decision to boycott goods from Israeli companies in the occupied West Bank and thus refused to sign the oath required by Kansas law. These are the Israel defunding free speech punishing laws that Rubio's bill is designed to strengthen. Although Rubio is the chief sponsor, his bill attracted broad bipartisan support, as is true of most bills designed to protect Israel and supported by APEC. Rubio's bill, last Congress, was co-sponsored by several Democrats who are still in the Senate. Bob Menendez of New Jersey, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Ben Cardin of Maryland, Ron Wyden of Oregon, and Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. So this is a blatant crackdown on free speech that has bipartisan support, that has had bipartisan support, because this isn't the first time they've tried to crack down on anti-Israel boycotts before. They've done it time and time again. And there are more draconian iterations that were proposed by Ben Cardin that were thankfully defeated, that were that came back up, though, that we're still having to fight, and we're having to fight this again. So this is something that's not going to be going away anytime soon. And even if it's the case that this particular iteration of this crackdown on anti-Israel boycotts already failed because it didn't reach its 60-vote threshold needed to continue on, this will come back again and again and and again, until we once and for all make it very clear to U.S. senators that we will not accept this, that their crackdown or attempt to crack down on freedom of speech will not be tolerated. Now, who's the main ally who's been vocal? One of the main allies, really, who's been vocal, besides Bernie, because we all know that he's against this, but who's the other ally who is speaking up and speaking out against this? It may surprise you. It's actually Dianne Feinstein of all people. I would have never expected Dianne Feinstein to land on the correct side of any issue. But here she is. She's tweeted about this multiple times. And she is against Rubio and the bipartisan coalition that he has following him here. Now, the article also points out that this is kind of awkward, given that there are two newly elected Muslim women in Congress, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, in the House, but nonetheless still in Congress, and they support a boycott of Israel. They support BDS because they see it as no other way 
of getting through to Israel's right-wing government, who is killing Palestinians. So what this bill is, is kind of a fuck you to them, right? Because they support boycotting Israel. But what they're saying is, no, we want to stop everyone from being able to speak out and penalize them and make sure that the states who are making anyone who contracts with the state government abide by this, you know, anti-boycott measure, we're making sure that they're protected legally. It's just, it's absurd, and I honestly don't know what to say about this, but certainly if these senators represent you, then you need to call them and make your voice heard. Ron Wyden is my senator, so needless to say, I will be showing up to the next town hall that he does, and I will make my voice heard about this, because this is completely unacceptable and frankly irredeemable. He's done some great things before, but this is something that is unforgivable. This is an attack on free speech that is so blatant that I don't see how anyone can support it and still show their face in public in the Senate. So I will be making my voice heard here. And if Ron Wyden doesn't change course, then I think it's time that we start looking to primary him as well. So um, yeah, this is despicable, but really not too surprising since they've been trying to push this through now for uh, about a year. I want to take the time to talk about a segment on The View where the subject of 2020 came up and Meghan McCain, surprisingly, wasn't saying something that was too idiotic. I mean, still, she managed to throw in some jabs, you know, at socialists and whatnot. But for the most part, she was talking about whether or not an AOC type of progressive Democrat will be able to thwart the establishment in 2020 in the same way that Donald Trump was able to thwart off the Republican Party establishment in 2016. Now, because she invoked AOC, well, for whatever reason, this triggered Whoopi Goldberg and she ended up going into an anti-Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rant just seemingly out of nowhere. So I'm going to play the clip for you, and I have quite a bit to say about it. So let's go ahead and watch. In 2016, we learned that the establishment of the Republican Party is insignificant. Voters voted who they wanted for. Mm. What we're going to find out going into 2020 is if the establishment really has any pull within their party like they did with Hillary, or if the vein of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the socialist Democrat in that vein, is going to end up being the nominee. Democratic and socialist. And I think they have the moved nominee on for what? Warren. For the Democratic to be the, to be oh, the listen, nominee for let me, the president. Let me just say this about Ocasio-Cortez. She just got in on... Thursday, she was sworn in. Yes. And she's very opinionated, which we like. We like opinionated women. But it is very, very difficult when people make accusations where you you say, you know, the Democrats have have done nothing. The the establishment of the Democrats Mm. have done nothing. And I just want to throw this out to you. Um, John Lewis. Oh, yeah. Wasn't sitting still. Right. Dianne Feinstein wasn't sitting still. Mm -hmm. There are a whole bunch of people in the Democratic Party who have been busting their asses to make sure that women get what they need, people get what they need, children get what they need. So you just got in there, and I know you got lots of good ideas, but I would encourage you to sit still for a minute and learn the job. And, you know, and just, you know, because there are people in that party who have been working their tails off for this country. They know a lot. And they know a lot. And you could and you could learn some stuff from them. And I just feel like, you know, 
you don't have to be uh, born into it. You don't have to know it when you step out. But before you start pooping on people and what they've done, you got to do something, too. Well, she hasn't done That's that. well said. Well, That's really well said. And there's room yeah. for new energy. There is, there is absolutely energy room for new energy. But you got to prove yourself. But you can't you know? poop on what was when you're right. coming in on the shoulders yeah. quite a few giants. Yeah. yeah, so before we get into the substance there, not that there was much substance to be found in her rant because it was barely coherent, but before we get to what she says and before I respond to it, I just want to point out something because in her main takeaway, her thesis, if you will, she said this, quote, you can't poop on what... <laughs> You can't poop on what was when you're coming in on the shoulders of quite a few giants. So she referenced poop. Keep that in mind. That's going to be important because I think it really gives us a hint as to what her worldview is, believe it or not. But if you'll recall, when she scolded progressives the last time, it was Justice Democrats. And this is what she said back then. Sit back and learn some stuff and then take over. But you can't come in and pee all over everything and say, you, it's, it's done. You can't you know. poop on what was. Pee, pee, poop, poop, pee, pee, poop, 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 pee, pee. Poopy dee scoop. Scoop dee dee whoop. <clears throat> so either Whoopi Goldberg has some weird fetish for poop and pee, or she looks down upon progressives as if we are dogs. And if your dog is being disobedient, what do you do? You have to scold them to make sure that they listen to you, that they get back in line. It's as if we are dogs who are just being a nuisance. And whenever we dare to criticize the all-knowing and benevolent Democratic Party, well, she's going to scold us because that's something that she doesn't like. It doesn't make her feel good. And really, to be fair to Whoopi Goldberg, it's not just her, because whenever progressives dare to criticize the Democratic Party and call on them to defend us or represent us, there's always some jackass in Hollywood who will explain to us how ridiculous we're being when in reality if you live in a democracy and you want to live in a democracy and you want to support a fucking party that has democracy in their name then you should understand that this is all part of the democratic process we're not satisfied with the democratic party establishment and as a result we are criticizing them because we want them to change and we want them to do better but elites like Whoopi Goldberg they just can't take that they can't take any criticism of the democratic party because their worldview is simplified she doesn't have to look at the problems within the Democratic Party. She just has to realize, oh, well, Republicans are way worse than Democrats. So how could you not support the Democratic Party when the alternative is fascism, right-wing extremism? And I understand that, but it really reveals her rich privilege. Because as all of these Hollywood elites criticize us from their ivory towers, they're missing the bigger picture. Now, I want to get to that. So she says that there's a whole bunch of people in the Democratic Party who have been busting their asses. And to her, I can see why she would think that. Someone who is just a casual observer of politics would think that. Because I remember back in uh, November when we were all criticizing Nancy Pelosi and pushing for Barbara Lee, there were people within the establishment pushing back against us saying, how could you possibly say that Nancy Pelosi is not progressive and how could you say she's a conservative which is even worse when back in you know the 1980s she was on the front lines marching for gay rights and pride parades and what these people fail to realize is that there are different ways to gauge how progressive someone is or isn't someone could be socially progressive an advocate for social justice issues and really be ahead of their time on those issues and i applaud people like nancy pelosi for that but now 
When we have someone who's to the right of Theresa May on healthcare, I don't think we can characterize them as progressive because think about this. Nancy Pelosi is right wing when it comes to healthcare. She refuses to support Medicare for all. And not only that, she ran through PAYGO to make policies like a Green New Deal or Medicare for all impossible to pass. Someone like Theresa May, who's the British Prime Minister in the Conservative Party, thinks that every single citizen should have healthcare. Nancy Pelosi doesn't even agree with that, so she's to the right of the leader of the Conservative Party in Britain. That just goes to show you how out of touch the so-called left-wing party is in America. So, sure, they may be socially liberal, but what also matters is what they're doing for the working class. She also said here that, I would encourage you, she says this to Ocasio-Cortez, to sit still for a minute and learn the job and, you know, and just, you know, because there are people in that party who have been working their tails off for this country and they know a lot and you can learn some stuff from them. Now, first of all, I just got to point out the optics here. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg is a very rich person telling someone from the working class who was just elected to Congress that you need to sit down and shut up. I mean, the condescension here is overwhelming. This is rich splaining 101, but she says, you know, um, there are people who've been working their tails off and you can learn a lot from them. So the overall, I think, implication here that she tried to subtly suggest is that, well, AOC is in over her head. She's naive. She doesn't know about politics. But whoopee, you've showed time and again that you yourself don't really know anything about politics because when you were trying to defend uh, Nancy Pelosi and other Democratic Party establishment figures, this is what happened. Nancy Pelosi got most of that Obama bill through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so if you admire these people so much, then you'd think that she'd have at least maybe one other example other than that Obama bill, which she couldn't even name. So you'd think that she'd have at least two examples she could cite as to why these establishment figures are so important and crucial. But nonetheless, she wants you to think that they're above criticism because to her, they are above criticism given the alternative. And I get it, Republicans are bad, but Democrats are awful and they're following Republicans to the right. As Republicans shift to the right, Democrats follow them. So what progressives are trying to do is course correction. We're trying to stop them as they shift to the right because as Republicans become more right-wing and extreme, they are shifting the Overton window and rather than pushing back, Democrats are following them. Now, she also says here, before you start pooping on people and what they've done, you got to do something. She's already done things, more so than progressive leaders, so-called progressive leaders in recent years. She is bringing attention to the issue of climate change, which so-called progressives in Congress have failed to do up until this point. It's because of her that we're all talking about the Green New Deal. And furthermore, you say that, well, she can't really say anything or do anything. She has to sit down and shut up until she does something and proves, you know, herself to us and proves that she's worthy to us. But maybe it's the case that people like AOC decided to run because they were dissatisfied. And you should be applauding her because what a lot of people do when they are dissatisfied with the status quo is they just check out. They stop voting. 
Do you even know how many people refuse to vote, Whoopi Goldberg? Of course you don't. Political apathy is a real problem, and AOC is a normal person who decided to do what few people have. She decided to run for Congress, and now you're shitting on her for that. And so getting back to Whoopi Goldberg's rich privilege, I mean, to her, it doesn't matter that Nancy Pelosi just pushed through PAYGO, which is a conservative rule that kneecaps the progressive agenda, because Whoopi Goldberg already has healthcare, and given that she has an estimated net worth of $45 million, she never ever has to worry about not being able to afford a medical procedure. She never has to worry about the Democrats like Joe Manchin, because her rich privilege shields her from the struggle of everyday Americans, and she doesn't have to be aware of the reality that Democrats have failed the working class. That's a Fact, you don't feel that will be because you are rich. You will never run out of money. You have $45 million. That amount of money is incomprehensible to working class individuals. So for you to say, shut up and don't criticize the Democratic Party, maybe you should shut up and actually listen to people like AOC and members of the working class who have substantive critiques of a party that has betrayed them time and again and abandoned them. But I doubt Whoopi Goldberg is going to do that because, again, she has rich privilege and she'd rather rich splain to progressives rather than listen and hear out their legitimate grievances with the Democratic Party. And it's really disappointing that even people who are supposedly liberal in the mainstream media really aren't allies to progressives or the progressive cause. I want to take a moment to go back to 2016, where Senator Bernie Sanders was running for president still, and he attended a town hall with Chris Cuomo of CNN, and he was asked a question about Medicare for All, and he was very specific in his answer. Now, I'm going to show you the clip of his answer. It's really quick. It's only 25 seconds. And then after I show you that clip, I'm going to show you how CNN subsequently reported on his answer to the question that they asked. But just to be clear... You are going to raise taxes to do this. Yes, we will raise, we will raise the, we will raise taxes. Yes, we will. But also let us be clear, Chris, because there's a little bit of disingenuity out there. We may raise taxes, but we are also going to eliminate private health insurance premiums for individuals and for business. So you've got the context. We're going to raise taxes, but we'll eliminate monthly premiums. Well, this is how CNN reported on it. Headline, Sanders breaks with campaign tradition in calling for tax hikes. And it wasn't just CNN who did this. MSNBC did the same thing. Bernie Sanders, we will raise taxes. Yes, we will. No mention at all of Medicare for all in the headline. The headline didn't read, Sanders, we will eliminate private health insurance premiums. No, what they did was they quoted him out of context in order to convey and imply that he just wants to arbitrarily raise taxes on normal Americans. That's what they tried to do. They asked him a question about whether or not Medicare for all will require him to raise taxes. He says yes, but explains how it's actually not going to hurt the Americans and lead to them having less money in their pockets. And they take him out of fucking context. Showing you how disingenuous supposedly left-wing media outlets are. 
Now, to no one's surprise, they did this same thing, the same exact tactic again, but this time to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, she recently gave an interview to Anderson Cooper for 60 Minutes, and there's a portion of that interview that they're really attacking her for. Now, I'm going to read to you her quote in order for you to get the full context, and then we'll go through how they reported it. She said, I think there's a lot of people more concerned about being precisely, factually, and semantically correct than about being morally right, and whenever I make a mistake, I say, okay, this was clumsy, and then I restate what my point was. So, I mean, we've all been following Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and what she's saying actually does make sense, because what people try to do is they try to fish out whatever errors they could possibly find in order to overlook the broader point that she's making. I mean, an example of this was when she was doing an Instagram live stream and she accidentally claimed that the executive Senate and House were the three chambers of government. Now, people try to imply that this was her being so dumb that she didn't even know that there were three branches of government, but it was obvious that she misspoke. So the point that she was trying to make is that people try to look for mistakes in order to skew what I'm saying. But still, I mean, I can word things clumsily. I'm a human being. That's what she said. She admitted that there. So, I mean, you have the context. You know what she said and why she said what she did. But can you guess how Chris Saliza of CNN decided to characterize her statement? This is what he tweeted out. He quoted a portion of what she said out of context and made it seem as if she was saying that she didn't care about facts. And he tweeted this multiple times, and if the implication was too subtle for you about what he was trying to convey about AOC, well, he makes his intentions even more clear by linking to an article he wrote about the interview titled, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Very Slippery Slope on Facts. So, he couldn't be more disingenuous if he tried. He quoted her out of context to make it seem as if she was saying she didn't care about facts. You can't do that because you're taking her out of context and you're not getting the broader point that she's trying to make. And the point she was trying to make is that by only focusing on the mistakes I make, people are missing the broader point, but I, of course I still care about facts. But that's not what he wanted to communicate to you. He wanted to make her seem uneducated and wacky, and it was probably the most disingenuous thing CNN has done since what they did to Bernie Sanders, where they quoted him out of context talking about Medicare for All and taxes. So, make no mistake about it, what this network did to Bernie Sanders is exactly what they're doing now to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But unlike when they did that to Bernie, AOC actually decided to call them out, call them on their bullshit, and she tweeted this to Chris Eliza, cover the quote in context, thanks. So I love this because it's often the case that propagandists in the mainstream corporate media, they rarely get called out rarely get called out. I mean, people in independent media call them out, but nobody listens to us. They're not watching The Humanist Report or The Jimmy Dore Show or Secular Talk. They don't give a shit about what we have to say, but someone who's a lawmaker actually called them out. And what happened next was my favorite part of the story, because Chris Saliza then proceeded to lie about why he took her out of context, got busted for lying about why he took her out of context, and then deleted the tweet where he lied about taking her out of context. So he responded claiming he did provide the full context and that quote, it's in the piece, just couldn't fit the entire quote 
due to Twitter character limit. But as Parker Malloy points out, not only did he have enough characters to include the full quote, he had enough characters to include a link to the full article as well. Now, Ocasio-Cortez then retweeted proof that he lied and called him out again saying, Chris Saliza, looks like your character count argument to avoid including my full quote is straight up wrong. Also, where are all of the Pinocchios for Republicans this week, many of whom are much more senior than me, blatantly lying about marginal tax rates? Exactly. The majority whip, Steve Scalise, in the Republican Party lied about her and her 70% marginal tax rate. He tried to make it seem as if she just wants to tax people blanket, 70%. Failing to even point out the fact that it's 70% for all income above $10 million. So either he's dumb or disingenuous. Chris Eliza didn't make a big deal about that. I honestly don't even know if he said anything about that. So he got called out for it and he tried to defend himself one more time by addressing his blatant lie about not having enough characters. And he said that what Parker Malloy showed wasn't a singular quote and that her quote was broken up and something, something, yada, yada, yada. And at that point, really anything he said didn't matter because if you go to that specific tweet, all of the comments just roast the fuck out of him. So much so that somebody posted an actual article, a serious person saying, don't bully Chris Eliza. Don't bully Chris Eliza. He's a fucking journalist. He's not, he's not being bullied. You can't bully the rich and the powerful. We're punching up. He's punching down. He's punching down on a politician who's fighting for the working people. That's not bullying. That's called speaking truth to power. But nonetheless, what he says here, you know, his excuse that, oh, well, you know, it wasn't a direct quote, there was too much in between, I'm going to blow Chris Saliza's mind here, because if there's a really long quote and you only want to include specific portions of the quote, if you want to cut out stuff from the middle of said quote, you actually have the ability to break up quotes if you play square brackets around three periods. We'll know that there's more in between the direct quote that you're using. He already knows that. He's a journalist. The problem is that he got caught being intentionally disingenuous, trying to mislead people who read that article and just, he was hoping, would look at the headline in order to make it seem as if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez didn't care about facts. That's wrong, and he got called out for it. And when someone in the mainstream media finally gets called out, what do other propagandists say in defense? Oh, that's bullying. Right, that's bullying. Well, how about this? Stop bullying us by asking how we're going to pay for Medicare for all, but not how we pay for the wars. Stop bullying us by trying to delegitimize progressive candidates like Bernie Sanders. But, I mean, this is all asymmetric warfare. They're allowed to take shots, but when we respond, we're the bullies. Unbelievable. So, regardless of how they responded and how much feelings were hurt here, I don't care. Whenever this happens, whenever mainstream media propagandists are trying to intentionally mislead people, you've got to do this. You've got to call them out and address it because if Bernie Sanders called them out for doing this and he's alluded to, you know, them being disingenuous before, if he directly called them out, I think that it would have worked out in his favor a lot. So I'm, I'm really glad that Ocasio-Cortez did this here because this was completely unacceptable. Shame on Chris Eliza. Well, it's a new day, so we all know what that means. There's another journalist around the country that decided to try to smear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, what do you do if you see 
a rising star in the progressive movement. How do you try to diminish their image among working class people? You compare them to other political figures who are widely disliked. Who did he choose? This guy, Max Boot. Who did he choose to compare Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to? Donald Trump and Sarah Palin. You are stupid. This is what he has to say in an article titled, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shouldn't approach her facts the way Trump does. He starts off by saying that he feels guilty even writing this article because he's given her even more attention than she deserves, which he implies she craves, and he admits that her biggest critics have been ineffective at attacking her in a way that lands, citing the response to the release of her dancing video and whatnot and how that backfired colossally, but he then joins the chorus of attacks himself, saying the real problem with Ocasio-Cortez is not how she dresses or where she comes from, it's that she is an uber-progressive, a self-proclaimed democratic socialist who cares more about ideological correctness than factual correctness. So he then goes on to cite examples of her making factual errors or wording things clumsily, and he brought up her recent 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper, and he claimed that her response to being fact-checked was that she was unapologetically incorrect, and he used the same clip of her 60 Minutes interview, the same exact portion that Chris Eliza took out of context, mind you, to suggest that she doesn't care about factual correctness. Now, to be fair to him, he actually did include her follow-up statement in the article where she emphasized the importance of fact-checking, but still, he said that her initial response was cavalier and that she, quote, displayed a cavalier attitude toward the truth similar to that of President Trump. Is that so? So someone who's made less than, what, a dozen mistakes thus far is similar to the president who has literally told thousands of lies. She's akin to that person? Is that really the argument that you're trying to make, that she's a compulsive liar like Donald Trump? I mean, I'm not even sure what to say to that. Sure, there have been times where she said incorrect statements, but as she stated in her interview with Anderson Cooper, yeah, I, I get it. Sometimes I say things that are worded clumsily, but facts do matter, and people often try to take me out of context in order to basically ignore the broader point that I'm making, and she's right about that. She is. Whether you want to admit that or not, she is correct about that. But what he does next is he extrapolates this attack on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this assumption that she doesn't care about facts, and he attributes it to everyone on the far right, but also what he calls the far left, which is just progressives, and he implies that centrists are really the only ones who care about facts, saying for both the far left and the far right, facts are an irksome detail of scant importance. What really matters is being morally right. If this attitude takes hold among the broader populace, responsible self-government becomes impossible and radical demagogues will succeed reactionary ones. So again, he's claiming that she doesn't care about facts, or if she does, she cares more about being morally right which is not what you fucking said um and he is basically putting her in the same category as radical demagogues and says that the far left just leftists progressives in actuality are like that as well but then we get to the grand finale one of the last paragraphs if not the last paragraph of this idiotic article where he 
directly compares her to Sarah Palin. So he says, in some ways, Ocasio-Cortez reminds me of Sarah Palin, a comparison neither woman will appreciate. Palin was another talented young communicator who made a big splash in national politics before having her lack of knowledge painfully exposed. Instead of studying up, Palin gave up any pretense of seriousness and has now disappeared from the debate. This is a cautionary tale for Ocasio-Cortez. She is a politician of immense gifts who can have an outsized impact but only if she masters the intricacies of policy and curbs her fatal attraction to political celebrity and vacuous soundbites. Trump has gone dismayingly far with his reliance on, quote, alternative facts, but it's not a formula that his opponents should emulate. So on one hand, he claims that she's more concerned with morality and her policies than being factually correct, but on another hand, he says that she's vacuous and cares more about being a celebrity. Well, which is it? You have to pick one. Either she's vacuous and there's no substance there or she cares so much about substance that she's willing to omit facts. He's making contradictory statements here and he doesn't even realize it. And the irony here is that Max Boot is an individual who was a Republican up until 2016 but renounced membership in the party when Trump was elected. So if you were a Republican, Max, then presumably you voted for Mitt Romney, but also John McCain, meaning you voted for Sarah Palin most likely, did you not? Did you vote third party? I'm assuming, given that you're an establishment figure, you voted for Sarah Palin. <laughs> <laughs> now, Max Boot tries to set himself apart from the rest of AOC's naysayers by denouncing all of the ad hominem attacks and the smear attempts of Ocasio-Cortez, but on another hand, he ends the article by comparing her to liars like Donald Trump and political nitwits like Sarah Palin, and let's just take a moment to parse out the comparison here. AOC stands for Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, tuition-free public colleges and universities, and standing up for the working class. Sarah Palin stands for... What? She's not Obama? That's someone who actually is vacuous, who doesn't know what she's talking about. AOC, conversely, actually cares about the issues. But you're comparing her... To Sarah Palin, not because there's any meaningful significance there or any substance in that comparison, but because it's a tool you use. Anyone we perceive to be dumb is going to be like Sarah Palin or Donald Trump. That's what you're doing. It's, it's very transparent. But you see, the thing is that AOC is obviously intelligent and she's young. She's ahead of her time. She's accomplished more in her 29 years of existence than you will accomplish in your life, Max Boot. So what do you do? Someone who's so intelligent, you attack them for their greatest strength. It may not work, but at least you bring it down a little bit. And that's what we've seen. It's almost as if this effort to attack AOC is an actual coordinated attack. We have Fox News nitwits and now propagandists in the Washington Post saying, oh, she's dumb. She's a political novice. She doesn't know what she's talking about. It's just unbelievable. She's being held to a completely different standard than Republicans. And this is what she pointed out in a response, saying, Naturally, the same week we kickstart a national conversation on marginal tax rates endorsed by Nobel Prize winning economists, I'm being described as vacuous. If you're allowed to characterize female politicians as unlikable, are we allowed to describe takes like these resentful? 
Let's refocus our energy and coverage to policies instead of personality. Right now, 800,000 workers are without a paycheck. The president is holding government operations hostage so that he can build a monument to himself on the southern border that the majority of Americans don't want. That's exactly it. And I'll leave it there because I think that she summarizes the situation perfectly. Stop focusing on personality. Focus on the policy substance. I think it's safe to say that pretty much every single progressive, including myself, we're all getting increasingly impatient waiting for Bernie Sanders to announce that he's running for president. I get it. It's only early January, but for the love of God, Elizabeth Warren already announced, just announced Bernie Sanders. And I'm not the only one who's getting impatient because our revolution officially announced that they're launching a draft Bernie campaign to influence him to run for president. Ruby Kramer of BuzzFeed explains, our revolution, the political group Bernie Sanders founded after his bid for the Democratic nomination, will start a campaign to draft the Vermont senator into the 2020 presidential race. The nonprofit organization run by Nina Turner, the former Ohio State senator and a staunch Sanders ally, asked supporters in an email days before Christmas if they should form Run Bernie Run to encourage the senator to jump into the 2020 campaign. On Monday evening, the group notified members that it would activate the draft effort, making Our Revolution the second group to encourage Sanders to run for president following the launch of Organizing for Bernie last month. Both efforts are separate from the official Sanders operation, but run by aides who are closely linked to the senator and his staff. Turner, the head of Our Revolution, regularly travels with Sanders, joining him most recently on a nine-state tour ahead of the 2018 midterm elections, and organizing for Bernie is headed by a longtime former aide, Rich Pelletier. Yeah, so I endorse this move a thousand percent. I think that you've gotta get started early, Bernie. For the love of God, just announce already. <laughs> I saw somebody post a meme on the Humanist Report Facebook page um, in response to the video that I made about David Brock attacking Bernie Sanders and his supporters, and it said, every time someone attacks Bernie, we donate. And I really like this move, but we can't donate if you haven't announced your campaign, if there's no campaign to donate to. And we all know that a Bernie 2020 campaign is inevitable, but at the same time, how far off are we from a Bernie 2020 campaign? We're getting reports that Joe Biden is weeks away from making his decision and possibly announcing we have Elizabeth Warren already hitting the campaign trail in Iowa. I think now is the time to announce. So um, I'm all for putting the pressure on Bernie to hurry up and announce. You did this to yourself, Bernie. You ran in 2016. You became the guy that, you know, um, nobody expected would run, but did run. And you started a political revolution, and we want that to continue. So I absolutely want him to run. And let me just make another plea to progressives who are thinking about, um, you know, jumping ship on Bernie 2020 and, uh, you know, in favor of someone else like Richard Ojeda, Andrew Yang, Elizabeth Warren, and even Tulsi Gabbard. If you want a progressive president, we should have one goal, and that is to consolidate the vote. I'm all for people making their choice, but understand that from a strategic angle, we've got to do what we can to make sure that all progressives unify behind the person who started this entire revolution to begin with, the person who influenced people like Tulsi and Elizabeth Warren and Richard Ojeda to run. 
And that person is Bernie Sanders. So if we all unify behind Bernie and establishment Democrats split the votes between Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke, whoever, then we improve our odds of getting through the Democratic primary with Bernie Sanders. So Bernie's the person who I'm going to back relentlessly. I'm going to be passionately enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders. And as soon as he announces, I'm going to donate the 27, I'm going to buy all the shirts and the merch, and I'm going to be obnoxious in my support for Bernie Sanders. I'm going to plaster a bumper sticker on my head, not because there's this cult of personality, because Bernie Sanders is not charismatic, because I care about the policies that he talks about. Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, tuition-free public colleges and universities, and he's really the last person, our last hope, who would actually bring about an FDR-type political revolution. So long story short, for the love of God, Bernie, just run! 2019 is going to be a very important year for net neutrality because the fight to save the internet will now be waged in the courts. And it's a battle that's going to be waged on multiple fronts because as you all know, there's the lawsuit against Ajit Pai and the FCC by 22 attorneys general as well as pro-net neutrality companies like Mozilla who are suing the FCC to get them to undo their repeal of Title II protections. But then there's also the lawsuit by the Justice Department against California because it enacted its own net neutrality regulations and that's certainly going to be important because that's a case that has further implications for other states like Oregon my state and Washington that decided to enact their own net neutrality regulations as well now the battle is going to start very very soon because on February 1st that's when oral arguments will be heard for the lawsuit against the FCC and Ajit Pai now the Washington Post's Brian Fung has a little bit more information about this upcoming court battle and he explains on Wednesday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit revealed the names of the three judges who will be deciding the case, Judith Rogers, Patricia Millett, and Stephen Williams. Of the three, Williams is a familiar face. Appointed to the court by President Ronald Reagan, Williams served on the three-judge panel that heard the case on net neutrality when the Obama-era rules were challenged by broadband companies. In 2016, he was the only judge who dissented, although that was only to part of the ruling to the decision that upheld the regulations. The two other judges for the February hearing are both Democratic appointees. Rogers was nominated by Bill Clinton and Millett by Barack Obama. Millett has argued forcefully for reproductive rights and has been called a worthy successor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, according to Slate. Rogers is considered a politically moderate judge who is meticulous in her knowledge of the way federal agencies properly make decisions, which will be the key issue facing the court when groups such as Mozilla face off against the FCC February 1st. Rogers' understated style and mild manner are not likely to give away to the courtroom which arguments she finds more compelling, but persuading her is likely the key to victory, said Andrew Schwartzman, a lecturer in law at Georgetown University. Judge Rogers is the vote that the FCC needs to win, said Schwarzman, adding, few things are ever certain when it comes to speculating about court cases. Now, reading this actually made me feel sick to my stomach, because this is going to be closer than it should be. It's going to come down to a swing vote. So either way, win or lose, it's going to come down to the vote of Judge Rogers. Shouldn't even be that close. It should be unanimous, but this is going to be close and if we win it's going to be by a very close margin which 
it, it's irritating to me because we shouldn't have to fight for something that 90 fucking percent of Americans want. But nonetheless, this is America. And that's the state of our country currently. So that's what's going to happen with that court battle. Now, I, I will say this. It's an important caveat. Even if it's the case that oral arguments are set to begin February 1st, which is good because I just want this to um, get started already. Well, it may be the case that this case, oral arguments specifically, are postponed because of the government shutdown. Now, federal courts run out of money as of January 11th, so they haven't said anything yet. It's still supposed to go forward as planned on February 1st, as of the time that I'm recording this. So that's the first lawsuit that we're talking about now. The second lawsuit, the Justice Department's lawsuit against California, is another thing that we will be watching very closely in the year of 2019. But the outcome of the first lawsuit against the FCC is going to heavily influence the second lawsuit against California. And really, it's going to set the tone for that lawsuit. And as it stands currently, California and the Justice Department actually reached an agreement where the Justice Department agreed to postpone their lawsuit and California agreed to not enforce their net neutrality law, even if it's currently on the books. So assuming both sides are waiting to see how that first lawsuit is going to play out, then we should see the second lawsuit go forward. Now, on top of this, internet service providers in Vermont are suing the state over their net neutrality bill as well. But overall, something that we all should be watching closely is the very first case, the lawsuit against the FCC by 22 attorneys general and companies like Mozilla. So this is all going to be very important and it will determine the future of the internet. How that first lawsuit goes is going to really have an influence in terms of legal precedent on how that second lawsuit is going to go because if they say that the repeal of net neutrality is legitimate and they uphold it then they're also upholding the FCC's ability to block states from passing their own net neutrality laws which means that the justice department legally can probably overrule California's law so this is all incredibly scary and understand that Another route to saving net neutrality is officially eliminated because the CRA resolution to restore net neutrality by Congress is dead. The deadline passed and they did not act in the House of Representatives. Now, it could be the case that Congress still takes action and passes a bill, but the problem with that is that in and of itself may be a fight that's harder than just letting them do nothing and just waiting to see how it plays out in the courts because big telecom companies are currently trying to push for a legislative solution because they know lawmakers are their puppets and they can get them to propose a bill that is supposedly net neutrality in an attempt to appease us that's actually not net neutrality i mean we saw this with marsha blackburn when she was in the house of representatives who is now a senator and can push this she proposed the shell bill that actually is harmful to net neutrality so i don't even want to push for a net neutrality bill because it could be watered down now. So I think that we should all just kind of wait, see how this plays out, hope that states, meanwhile, pass net neutrality protections because I think it's important. But I think everyone, you know, at this point, be it citizens, um, internet service providers, are waiting to do anything. But if this goes south, if we lose this battle in court, that's when I think we can expect internet service providers to get a little bit more draconian in their attacks 
on net neutrality, be a little bit more brazen because right now it's clear that they're being cautious because they don't know how this is going to play out. So why would you drastically change the infrastructure of the internet knowing that it could backfire? You may have to reverse it again. So this is going to be a huge year when it comes to net neutrality. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. I hope that you've enjoyed the episode if you've made it this far. Thank you so much. And as usual, I want to send a special thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show not just to survive but thrive as well. And no, that's not scripted. I say it every week because it's just something that's on my mind and also on my heart. And additionally, I want to send a thank you to all of our listeners on iTunes and SoundCloud. We have a really dedicated base of listeners on SoundCloud and iTunes that loyally will wait for the uploads of the audio every single week and i can't let those people go un- unacknowledged so thank you all so much uh i'm gonna go and uh get some sleep take a nap hopefully um after i edit a few videos of course because you know um there's always work to be done but with that being said uh thank you all so much for tuning in i'm mike Figueredo. this is the humanist report i will see you next week take care